Welcome back to The Francisca Show, where we encourage fellow artists and entrepreneurs to collaborate and support each other while sharing their stories. I'm Francisca, a singer, composer, and also your host. And today we have a very special guest, Dr. Ruth Pinkinson Feldman, an awarded Jewish educator, writer, and well-known artist, a recipient of the Lifetime Prestigious Covenant Award for Outstanding Jewish Education. So welcome, Dr. Ruth. It's such an honor to have you on this show. You're also known as the Green Bubby. You're definitely one of mine Green Bubbies. such an honor to be with you. I love being your Green Bubby. It gives me a chance to feel like I'm a part of your development. And seeing you blossom makes me feel so good. Yes, thank you so much. You I just want to share that you live here in Balakinwood. We live side by side in the same town. And we recently discovered each other. And within a week of meeting each other, we already collaborated on a Rosh Chodesh event where you hosted a group of women and taught about Ruth, who also has your name, Megillah Ruth, before Shavuos. And I sang my Ruth song there. So it was really nice to have that opportunity. We just met and we already started creating and collaborating. So thank you so much for giving me that opportunity. My pleasure. So let's get started. I'd like to know how you got started. Before we get to the artist part of you, I know you have used your talents in other ways in education, which is a very familiar place for me because a lot of talented women in my life have also expressed and use their talents for education. So tell us a little bit about your background and what you have accomplished in Jewish education that got the amazing Covenant Award. Okay, so I think one way to look at it is that for 12 years, I was the director of early childhood for the Jewish Community Centers of World of North America. And in that position, I was able to create programs that were used throughout the continental United States. And as a from Orthodox woman, it was really my privilege and opportunity to translate important Jewish ideas. First, the idea of Jewish time, which I did by creating a program called This New Month about Rosh Kodesh. And then I had the opportunity to create a program called An Ethical Start which was a program to teach Pirkei Avos to parents, teachers, and children. And it was text-based, and it was musical, and it had books. And I wanted to do it at like a Broadway level of art and music and excitement, that even though we all know how Pirkei Avos is something that's in our blood and we know it so well, many people had never heard of it. And I said, the best way we can do it is to try to attract them by beautiful artistry, visual, music, and get them access, and then the opportunity, with it, the opportunity to learn the text itself with Meforshim, which was so new to so many people. And for me, as a result of that, um, I think that was my greatest accomplishment in that venue. And for me, it was an opportunity to uh, find ways to take Jewish ideas and Jewish texts and translate them. I think that's what I've always been able to do in the field of early childhood, both to translate ideas into a way that children can understand them, but also to make things accessible to adults. Uh, because many people, I always say, if you can't explain it to a four-year-old, you don't really understand it. And if you can, then your understanding is very deep. 
So that was one of the things that I was doing then. And you integrated this program into 12 JCCs? No, to 60 JCCs across wow. North America, 60 communities across North America. But then when I left the program about 10 years ago, I had to reinvent myself. The program stayed with the JCCs. And then I had to say, now what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Okay. Thinking about it and going over many of the Mishnayot in my own mind, particularly Ezehu Ashir, Asameach Bechelko, who is really rich, the one who's happy with what they had. I had to really look at what do I really have that has nothing to do with a big income. And I realized that I had an incredible ability to give. That Baruch Hashem, I had a wonderful mother, Oliver Shalom, and I was also blessed with having three wonderful children who by then were all... Um, married. And I said, well, I still have a lot of love to give. And so I created this idea of the green bubby. Can you tell us the development of the green bubby and how it turned into a book? Sure. So I had, because I had done the Pirkeavo problem pro project, I already had the idea that you could do something and it could have a very large reach. And I wanted to create a character. So I thought about what if there could be a green bubby I used to say an energy efficient model. You don't even need your own children. You can nurture somebody else's sprouts. So it wouldn't be your mother's mother, but it would be a way to connect with people intergenerationally. Uh, you couldn't hire a green bubby and you can't pay for her services. But as an, a woman getting a little older, I was in my 50s at the time. And I said, I have a lot of energy and my kids live all over the continent, but nobody lives nearby. But... There are all these other young families who live near me. Perhaps I could reach out to them and to others and find a way of sharing my gifts, my energy, my love locally, as well as to all of my wonderful children and grandchildren all over the place. And that became the Green Bubby. I wasn't sure if it would be a character, uh, but then once I began to talk about it, what I found out was that it was really the name of a new relationship. So just like with you and me, Francisca, I see this incredible young person. I want to connect. I'm like, oh, I could be your green bubby because you have a wonderful bubby. Um, and it's a way to connect artistically and spiritually and to give people a sense of how one can grow older and continue to give and how one can nurture people and share the wisdom and the experiences of life. So I wrote a book. It became the, it became first a relationship. And then I said, I think I'll write about it. So I wrote a book. I was part of the Jewish Book Council. I traveled to Canada, Texas, Connecticut, all over. And I would speak about it. And I still get calls about it. People read it. It's available on Amazon. And even Mishpacha Magazine came and interviewed me. And this is a nice transition because when um, they came to my home and the porch you know, also full of nature and gardening. And that's also the green of the green bubby, by the way, is that if you cut a branch of a tree, you'll see if it's green, it means it's still growing. So too, like it says, that people will continue to grow old and um, that, um, to flourish in old age. So I'm, I'm very much about the garden as well. So when Mishpacha Magazine came to see me, they saw all the art 
And uh, Baruch Hashem, they took pictures of many of my paintings and it came out in a story that they did in the magazine. So I think that that's a wonderful transition as well to see my evolution as a religious Jewish woman from educator to writer to artist and to see that the art is actually what many young people now look at and say, I want to be like you. I want to be an artist. I want to find ways to express myself. That's really beautiful. And you make it sound so natural and it totally makes sense. Except I'm looking at your stunning pieces of art and your your work. And I can't understand how you can do all of that without years of training. Can you tell us if you have any education or training in the art? The way I learn art is very similar to the way I talk about learning Judaism from a green bubby. We're all learning from other people. You can learn from books, but there's certain things you can only learn about, I believe. You know, even davening. You know, you learn by being with somebody who davens. You know, you learn emuna by talking to people who have strong emuna. And in my life, I learned to be an artist by meeting other artists, seeing their work, seeing their life, how they live. I don't, I'm not interested in drawing, although many people are, but I can share with you that one of my teachers would say that she could teach anyone how to draw, but she couldn't teach anyone how to be an artist. So there's certain skills that you can acquire, like drawing. Like if you want to learn how to draw pears or oranges, that's a skill. You can learn that. But the kind of art that I do really comes from studying artists, people that I know. Also going to museums, looking at other artists' work. I don't copy at any point, but I am highly inspired by people. And I think that I'm fearless when it comes to painting. You know, people have fears in different ways, but I think as a painter, you need to be fearless and willing to experiment. Years ago, I did watercolor flowers. And I used to laugh and say, I can draw flowers, but I can't draw fruit. For some reason, I figured out how to draw flowers and they were very beautiful. And people said, why don't you just keep drawing these beautiful watercolor flowers? And I said, well, I don't think the world needs more watercolor flowers from me. You know, especially you could take a photograph of a flower. But what if I used art not as a vehicle to record what I see, but what if art is a way to explore what I don't see? You with me? Yes. I'm okay. Captivated. So in, let's go back to what I learned about early childhood. There's a theory in child development you might have heard of, like Reggio Emilia, a place in Italy. Um, where they really have spent a lot of time into how children learn to draw, or better still, in Italy, they draw in order to learn. Here mm -hmm. in America, people were very much more interested in teaching kids how to draw or interpreting their drawings. But in Italy, they also had this idea from the founder of the movement, Malaguzzi, that children had a hundred languages with which to express themselves. And schools, unfortunately, get rid of a lot of those languages. For me, once I left the field of early childhood, I still understood how people, not just children, learn and live and communicate. And if you think of art as a language, then it opens up the possibility 
that it's not just making pictures. It's about communication. It's about making meaning. It's about expressing yourself and reaching out and reaching out. And you don't even know who your audience is. So in that sense, on a very deep level, I see painting as a form of tefillah, which may be an unusual concept for some of your listeners, but just as in the deepest levels of Kavanah, we're trying to reach and speak to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, who we can't see, but we know on a very deep level is inside of us and outside of us, but we want to connect. And so for me in painting, I'm also trying to touch that very deep level and say something that hasn't been said and connect to someone I can't see, but I'm very much trying to express something. It's a sort of, it's it's more metaphysical than optical. I say now that my spiritual life and my artistic life are merging because I don't try to illustrate let's say, something in Tehillim. You know, I'm not trying to draw mountains, but what I am trying to do is say, what do skipping mountains look like? Heharim rakaduke elim. Now, what is that about? So I'm not trying to use my art as illustration. I'm trying to use my art more like the drush level, like the meaning or the so, the secrecy. And what's fascinating to me, and I think you've experienced this a a little bit, is when people look at my art and they say, I see that. Or they see something else that's very deep. Or I make an abstract painting and people respond to it. I love that response. I love that my paintings reach a part of people that lets them express something and it's not about right answers it's not like what did i draw what is it it's more like wow and stopping in front of a painting and just looking just perceiving like get rid of the words and just let the colors speak so i think many of our listeners can identify with that because I think every form of art very much correlates with the artist's spirituality and Judaism and connection with Hashem. They use their form of art as a medium of connecting and the the way you're talking about the colors, that's how I feel about music. To the point where I don't even write lyrics, I use psukim because for me it's connecting my you know, interpretation, my the music I see and feel with it with the psukim which is tefillah, the way you put it. We're talking the same language, and I think many of our listeners feel the same way and completely understand this point of view. A hundred percent. Let me say one more thing about this, Francisca. Sometimes I feel that while I'm creating, I'm having this conversation with the paint. Like I don't sit down with an idea and try to draw an idea. I go back and forth with the paint, with the painting, and it keeps evolving. At some point in the process or after it, I start maybe giving it titles or I imagine titles or I put it down and then I'm saying to Hillam and all of a sudden while I'm saying to Hillam, something will jump out at me, a pasuk, and I said, that's it. I mean, I didn't try it. I just say, I recognize my painting in the Tehillim. So sometimes I just say, 
of a painting, well, we'll call this Tehillim 33, you know, Lama Gimel or some other number, and let somebody else figure out what the connection is. Sometimes I go back and forth. I have this beautiful painting um, that's full of color, just full of color and energy. And I was trying to figure out, I know this, I see it, I recognize it. And then I realized in my davening every day when I say, and it's a, at the end it says, I said, that's it. This painting is about, it's all in order that I can sing the praises of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and I will not be silent. So the colors, the energy, the movement in that painting is really all about, I will not be silent. I relate to that as well, because very often the music comes before the psukim, and then you find the connection when you find that pasuk that you're like, whoa, that totally fits. But it's not about me. We're talking about you. I'd like to know about some of your exhibitions and your events that you've done with your art. Professionally speaking, in terms of an artist, I also know that you sell your paintings. And on this podcast, one of the signature discussions we have is talking about the financial aspect of being an artist and what that's like. And even for people who are extremely successful and talented, what challenges you have to face. Just buying canvas and paint costs a lot. That's a complicated but extremely important question. Baruch Hashem, I am not trying to use my art career to put my three children through day school. You know, Alavaya would pay for the um, tuitions for all of my grandchildren. I'm not there. Um, and that's really hard. And I think that it's very hard to combine true artistry with the um, economics of it. Uh, but at this point, I also want to say that this is my source of income. In addition to my limited social security, this is it. So I, I think that's a great motivator that you need to need it. So whether you needed to pay for a whole tuition or you needed to pay for trips to Israel or you needed for whatever, you need to need that money. You need to need it enough to work really hard and say, I, this better be the best it can be because I need to sell it. I want to sell it and I value it. The worst thing is for people who don't need the money to undersell their work. You know, and you see artists selling things for less than the cost of the canvas and the paint because they, they don't need the money. That's ridiculous. For the art community to succeed, everybody has to account for the amount of the, uh, the cost of the materials. You don't get an hourly rate. You pick a, a price that you know other things sell at that price, and then you keep going. The first time I sold a collage after I left my fancy job and I decided to become an, as I say, soon to be very famous artist. I started with collage and uh, I sold one for $200 and I said, wow, that's great. It covered the cost of the class. This is great. I'm going to get into it. And then I got better and better and I sold more and more. The other very liberating thing was um, taking that same $200 and having things professionally photographed although now I can use the um, digital camera just as well. Once I was able to duplicate things, I had um, I was able to let go in a way that for many years I didn't want to sell my watercolors because they were really beautiful. 
So one way to monetize is I made them into greeting cards. And uh, people bought them, but then I said, this is not what I'm about. I'm not in the marketing of the greeting card business. People are welcome to buy them, happy to sell them to you. Um, I also donate them sometimes. I did that. So don't ask me about that because I've already donated enough of them. Um, <laughs> but that's something that you can think of when you want to, if your artists out there are listening, to think of how they can work with uh uh, groups to when do you want to donate and when do you want to monetize and not to start giving them away as presents. Don't do that. Um, but I can also, I sell prints of some of them. I just put things, I have a website that doesn't have prices, but it says contact me for Gicle prints, which are signed and numbered or for originals. And I also just put things on Fine Art America, so that people, that's a commercial site. I haven't had any real success with, with it yet, but I also haven't advertised it. Uh, where people who want my work, but at a lesser price, can order it. I think, you know, I, I'm experimenting with that. I think that that's good. And to give people the option, you know, plenty of people can afford um, original art and I sell to them but I'm happy when people say I wish I could afford your art I said well you can you can have a number G clay print or you can go to this website and buy it at any size you want or many people have bought my cards and framed them and that's fine too so I like to have things at a variety of price points but not to uh, undervalue the originals that's really a way you found to make it work for you and to keep your dignity intact and at the same time provide value and offer options and make everyone feel included and a part of it that right. they can and also then i find that people find out about me in different ways like the article in mishpaka i never thought someone would buy a painting because they saw it in the magazine but it's true and she bought a big painting Somebody else, I gave a shear, as you know, sometimes I'll give a Rosh Chodesh shear, and um, someone came and saw a painting and then called me back and said, do you still have that painting that I saw? They bought it. I've had two Bishvat Seders in my house, and months later someone said, do you still have that painting with the blue at the top? And I'm like, what painting with the blue at the top? He wound up buying two paintings. So sometimes people see them in my home studio. And Baruch Hashem, this is a wonderful story too. Someone came to see a show that I did at a member's artist gallery, the Da Vinci Art Alliance, and I'm a member there. I did a solo show, and uh, she came to see it and said, you know, we just bought a building. How would you like to have a gallery? And in a nanosecond, I said, of course. She said, I think your paintings would look beautiful. So now I give them my paintings and I can give Shearing in their office. It's the Fun and Function, a wonderful company that provides all kinds of learning materials for children that um, have sensory issues and uh, people should look that up. That's an extremely successful company. But there's a mutuality of sharing your art in you know different kinds of offices or different venues and you get exposure and they have beautiful art in their building and i have a wonderful gallery so there are all kinds of ways of exploring it without giving it away or undervaluing the cost of the work people want to show your work if it's really good 
If it's not really good, wait till it gets great and then do it. Right. Um, I, there's a common theme, I feel like, that creates that recipe. Well, besides Prashgacha Pratis, I feel like you have obviously tremendous amount of talent, but you're also a very big giver and partnered up together with just no fear, being completely fearless. You know, rejection of, of not creating such a good piece when you're working on something, you mentioned that before, how you just don't have fear when it comes to, you know, painting or drawing. So I find Absolutely. that. I think if your listeners take anything away from this, it should be, uh, don't be afraid. Like Rabbi Nachman says, the, the whole Ikar is don't be afraid. You know, the, the, the bridge is narrow, the canvas is blank. But the ichor is, you know, don't be afraid. Um, put yourself out there. Try. that. Not even try. Just do it, you know, and share it. You know, get it outside of yourself. And realize it's all l'shem shemayim as well. That uh, I also, and this is a part of it, I always tell people that I will give 10% to the tzedakah of their choice. And I let people know this is my way of uh, giving tzedakah. When I sell a painting and I'm able to give $500 to a school, I'm like, Baruch Hashem, I've always wanted to be a giver, you know? And um, in that way, I've given to different organizations that are important to the people who purchase the art. Right. That's a beautiful way to, you know, give back to the community when you do business with Jews who give miser. And to that. share that mitzvah with the person who's buying it. Exactly. Brings it all together. I know you feel like um, maybe this is your this is your thing. You finally brought everything full circle, starting from education into writing and then bringing it all together with art. Do you have something that you still feel like you haven't accomplished or something something you'd like more from your art, I'd like to hear what your passions and ambitions are because I I can't imagine you don't have them. I think that it's the, the idea of lifelong learning and the idea that um, I want to learn more and I want to see where that takes me. I mean, sometimes I joke that it's... Uh, I look like I'm having a group show sometimes because I use so many different mediums and processes in my painting. But a lot of it is finding the deeper I go in my learning, whether it's Nefesh HaChayim or, you know, or Hasidus or, you know, Tehillim, that really the depth of my spiritual search is what fuels my artistic expression. And so my goal, like all of our goals, is to go grow closer in my relationship to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and to have the co-op to keep sharing and loving and bringing us all closer. Thank you so much for being on the show. <clears throat> my pleasure. Dr. Ruth Feldman has a website. I think the best way to reach me is through ruthfeldmanart.com. And if you're interested in hosting a gallery or buying an, a painting, definitely reach out. Get a book. The book is incredible. I'm still in the middle of reading it. Even though it's not such a big book, I don't have so much spare time to read. Many people say they keep it by their bed and they read one little bit a night. Right? <laughs> that's really, that's exactly what what's happening here. 
So thank you so much for being such an inspiration, for being my green bubby, for being a green bubby for so many of us out there, for really being such a role model for women and, and I'm sure for men and children. If you have been enjoying this podcast, please make sure to leave us a review, subscribe, and share the show with people you think may also enjoy it. See you next time.